Otessa Moshve is a singular talent in literature, the author of four novels, most recently Death in Her Hands in 2020 and Lapvona in 2022. Her works are filled with dark humor and pathos. Her first novel, Eileen, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2016. In this interview with Otessa Moshve, recorded February 2, 2017 in the KPFA studios, she talks about her short story collection, Homesick for Another World, which focuses on our bodies and our lives in this physical universe. This interview was first posted March 28, 2017. The stories in Homesick for Another World have been published in various publications over the course of the last decade. I think the oldest is from 2007. The first story that I wrote in the collection was the one called Mr. Wu, which I wrote concurrently with the first story in the collection that appears called Bettering Myself. Bettering Myself took about two years to write, so I had written Mr. Wu and had continued writing the stories in the collection and couldn't get Bettering Myself right for a long time. And Anyway, it ended up being the, the headpiece, sort of, or at least the introduction to the whole thing. Why did you choose to put the stories in the order they're in? They're generally in the order that I finished them, or rather that I conceived of them. Each story asks a certain question, or asked something of me, which led me to the next story. And so that's the arc that I saw. When you say, ask something of me, what exactly Mm -hmm. do you mean? Well, each story is a challenge and asks something of me that I don't know. So the question with Mr. Wu was, what is more powerful, desire or pride? In answering that question for Mr. Wu, I had to set up some fictional scenarios where that was going to be tested. So each of these stories, in that sense, begins with a question that you're challenging yourself about, you think? It doesn't really begin that way. But once I've gotten to know the narrator or the character, something comes up for me. And I have to, at some point, I have to make an authorial decision. What is this story about? And do I want the character to succeed and learn? Or do I want him to continue to self-deceive and learn in the wrong direction, you could say? And in the case of Mr. Wu, I decided that he would probably fall apart if he really faced the truth about himself and and his fate, which is that he's going to be alone forever. When you say that story leads to another question, okay, Mm -hmm. the next story in the book is Malibu. Yeah. Okay, so how does Mr. Wu lead to Malibu? Malibu is another story about vanity. From this question of pride versus desire, next comes vanity. And the narrator of Malibu is a young guy, completely obsessed with his appearance, who lives in Hollywood. He has pimples. He's bu- he has bulimia. He is um, somehow obsessed with dating, but totally uninterested in women, and just wants someone to tell him he's beautiful. Really, his only friend is this uncle that lives up in Agora Hills, which is, you know, just like half an hour from Los Angeles. And the two of them have a pretty weird rapport. In a sense, on some kind of continuum, the book almost has a novelistic arc. No, I'm not going to say that that's true. But I will say that the experience of writing the collection was a total one. 
And by the time I, I wrote the final story, I knew the book was over and that I didn't need to write any more short stories. Ever or just for this collection? Possibly ever. Really? Yeah. You've written now the two novels and the collection of stories which were written over a period that extended from before the novels. I wrote McGlue. Then I began the collection, Homesick for Another World. In the middle of the collection, I wrote Eileen. So let, let's go back a bit because you have an interesting history. Your father escaped Iran in 79 and your mother is from Croatia and you were born in this country, mm-hmm. correct? And when you grew up, they were both musicians. You played four instruments as a kid? Is yeah, but not very well. I was mostly a pianist. And I should say, it wasn't just my father that, quote-unquote, escaped Iran. My whole family was forced to leave Iran, including my Croatian mother, who had moved there with my dad a couple of years earlier with my older sister. My whole family was blacklisted. My mother ended up getting a job teaching violin in Boston, which is how we ended up in Boston, and I grew up in Newton, Mass. The pianist thing, you were very talented, but at a certain point you said, I don't want to do this, I'd rather write, which meant that you were thinking about writing even very young. Is that right? I knew I was a writer when I was like 13. It was just something I I discovered about myself. It's like in the same way you might discover you're gay or Mm -hmm. you have an amazing voice or something. I discovered that I was a writer, so I had better do that. (laughs) (laughs) You started writing there. How successful were you in terms of your own thoughts about your success? Obviously, nothing got published. But if you were writing at that age, was it proto-versions of these stories? Was it something else? Was it based on what you were reading? No, it had nothing to do with what I was reading. It was just an exploration and a practice. You know, when you're a teenager, or when I was a teenager, I wasn't thinking about success or even publishing a book. I mean, that that was the furthest from my mind. I just wanted to delve into what interested me and get better at what I was doing and discover new ways of doing it. So I've, I've been dedicated to that. And it really wasn't until Eileen, the writing and the publishing of Eileen, that my work entered a, a level that, that overlapped with the world of writing that is about publishing things. You know, I'd published stories before, but I really resisted the import of that. I never wanted to be motivated by publishing or getting paid for anything, except for when I decided to write Eileen. I made an about face and very deliberately took that on as an experiment to write a book that I could sell to support myself as a writer. What kind of jobs were you doing during those years? I was unemployed that year. Actually, I had a job as a transcriber. What I was transcribing, not under the table, but working person to person, was somebody who was working on a memoir and doing a lot of interviews, and he was a wonderful person. And he was also from Massachusetts, although he was in his 60s, and had a lot of material on what it was like to grow up in New England on the coast. And a lot of that trickled into my imagination while I was writing Eileen. Otessa Moshfeg, I noticed in your stories and in Eileen, if I were to pick one thing that started me reading them is each story, even Mr. Wu, which is third person, but most of them are first person, it's the voice of the characters as if that voice propels you before anything else. You suddenly go, oh, wait a second, there's someone there. Right. Is that right? Yeah, that's how I feel about the writing them too. Someone is there, and then I have to write it down. 
Do you know where it's going when you're writing it? Do you almost never? Really? Almost never. It, sometimes I'll think I'll know, and then I'll be wrong and devastated at my mistake and whatever. My ego will be bruised, uh, and then it'll go somewhere much more interesting. And it's usually the place that I can't see it going that it needs to go. I said to you before we walked in the studio that I was partway through homesick, second story, and it suddenly occurred to me that these were funny that I almost read them wrong. Mm -hmm. When you were writing them, were you aware of the dark humor? Yeah, I don't know any humor that isn't dark, honestly. I mean, unless we're going to clown school. Clowns are dark, but... (laughs) Yeah, so there I proved my point. What's funny, like kids, I don't know, kids' jokes? Like we're, I'm 35 years old, I'm not going to be making kids' jokes. I'm writing about, you know, real people. They're actually very ordinary, but I'm just looking at them really close up. So when I write the stories, the voice kind of tells me what to do, and it's usually very self-serious. And at a certain point, I see that it's just absolutely ridiculous, that the laments and woes of this petty person should be ridiculed in some way without completely dishonoring the voice. They're satires, they're comedies, but they're also something else, too. And I think people can appreciate them on different levels. But I know some people just... With Eileen as well, they just thought, this is too dark for me, without seeing the complexity of the funniness as, like, I'm giving you an out. You know, like, you're allowed to laugh at her. It's okay. You're allowed to laugh at me. We should be laughing more at each other and ourselves. When you get that moment in reading your own work and you go, well, this is a little over the top. I need to laugh. At that point, does it become harder for you to stay true to the voice, knowing that on some level you've sort of caught the subtext yourself? That's a really good question. Um, Probably, but I also take myself way too seriously. So I'm not going to throw a story away into a joke. I'm ridiculously overachieving, I guess. The stories, some of them have plots and some of them don't. Are you ever thinking of plot? I mean, Eileen has a plot, but the plot doesn't kick in until the second half of the book. Yeah, plot, whatever. Plot is for TV and movies, and it can be for literature if the writing earns it or if the writing needs it. I'm not obsessed with plot in the way that a lot of people approach writing from a, you know, what's the story, what's the plot I'm much more interested in the tonality of the voice, first of all, what the voice wants to say. It doesn't have to go anywhere. If I'm interested and captivated by it, it's a good story. You've done a lot of interviews in which you sort of try to psychoanalyze yourself as to why you write the stories you do. And I want to throw out a couple of quotes at you. You said, these stories are my first attempt to impress on people how weird it has been for me to feel alive And I do that by using these puppets who are struggling with their absurd miseries. That idea that they're puppets, Mm -hmm. are they puppets? Yes, we know that they're not real people. So they're phantoms, they're puppets, they're fiction puppets. And you're pulling the strings, but the strings you're pulling aren't necessarily conscious. No. How much of what we do is conscious? Probably 2%. So you always have felt really weird and out of place. That seems to be the sum total of the interviews that a lot of what you write now is based on the fact that you felt 
like you were from yourself, homesick for another world. Yeah. Uh, until recently, I felt like that overwhelmingly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's also a lot of body imagery, mm-hmm. particularly, well, not obviously in Eileen, but also in, in the stories. These are people with frequently severe physical issues that mm-hmm. they have to deal with on a daily basis. How conscious are you that that's a focus as you're writing it or like with the humor, do you suddenly go, oh, I guess I'm doing it again? Well, I can't imagine a person existing without a body because I guess that would just be a floating mind and that wouldn't make for a very good character because I couldn't picture him anywhere or put her in a situation without her just floating away. So a character needs a body and I think that the physicality of you, of me, is what appears on the outside. And then there's this great mystery of what's happening inside my mind or if I have a spirit and all of that kind of stuff. So the body as this casing for self is fascinating to me. And I think we've ascribed all these values on it. You know, this is beautiful. This isn't. This is unhealthy. This is sick. This needs this and that needs that. That's all fine. I'm, I'm not trying to create a political paradigm for what a body should or should not be. I'm just looking at bodies, frankly, for their individuality, the miracle of them, how they can disgust us, how I can disgust myself with my own body. And I think it all really just comes down to the fear of death. You know, I'm afraid of my body because I, I, know, I know that it's going to die. And when my body dies, I might die. How conscious, again, when this comes up, it's just like, oh, he has a rash. That's so prevalent throughout your work. At what point does that hit you? Does it just come from left field or? That's not the right question. <laughs> Fine. It's What's just, the right question? The, the, the right question is, are you just obsessed with this? And okay. the answer is yes. <laughs> I've just been obsessed with it. It's like if I was a heroin addict. You know, I'm not going to go write a book about how to raise pigs. And if I did, it'd prob- the pigs would probably be on heroin. Okay, so I'm obsessed with certain things and those things show up in my work. And a- an obsession can be conscious and subconscious, right? I try to avoid boring myself in my work with just more obses- obsession. And when I say obsession, I don't, I don't mean to put a negative spin on it. It's just right. these are the things that my life has been about These are the things that concern me and that have made me curious about being alive. And also the things that I don't feel like I've been talked to about or there's some shame around a lot of this that I felt the only way I could get it out of me was to put it into fiction. They're all loners in a way, all of these characters, and they're all very much inside themselves. There's very little communication between your characters and anyone else. In the story, Nothing Ever Happens Here, you have this young actor and his older landlady. And that's the closest, I think, in any of these stories to people interacting. Yet at the same time, it's not clear if they're even communicating. This appears over and over in your stories as if the loneliness is almost overwhelming. Yeah. I was really lonely writing this book. I was really lonely. And... and the homesickness is just that general loneliness of being one person with one consciousness and not feeling like I'm 
even capable of connecting truly. Like, can somebody truly, like, characters ask themselves often in that book, can you really know somebody? What does it really mean to know somebody? And, you know, I wrote this book over five years in my early 30s, and I didn't feel like anyone knew me, you know, and I was hiding a lot when I was writing it. There is the husband whose wife dies. Yeah. But even there, ultimately, the story is even more about loneliness because there was a time when he wasn't lonely. That story's funny, too. That guy loses his wife and realizes that the whole relationship had been a farce, that he had never actually been happy. He had just been this puppet for this woman who wanted to be entertained or whatever. And then he goes on an adventure to seek revenge in this certain way. And I think the way that he does that is funny. Do you worry about whether a narrator is reliable or unreliable? Or is that just a concept that has no particular meaning for you? No particular meaning. I mean, I think that's something people talk about when they teach writing and when they teach reading. As a writer, I mean, I'm not thinking in those terms. I think about other things. Eileen, you're not worrying about whether what she's telling us is necessarily, quote, true. It's just what she's telling us. Yeah, it's her performance of a story. And I think that's the way that she presents her narrative. I'm telling you a story. And she's she's very upfront about it. This is why I think she's actually completely reliable. She tells you up front, I'm going to try my best to tell you exactly what I think happened. And I know I've for- forgotten some. Some I'm going to flub. But this is my story as I'm telling it to you. And I think that's actually, like, I trust her just as much as I would trust anybody else. None of us know how to tell the truth. It's like remembering a dream. You know, you fill in what you can't remember. Is that why it's written 50 years after the fact? Well, I wanted her to have perspective. And I wanted her to be able to make fun of herself and also defend herself in a funny way. Was the decision to have the narrator 50 years in the future, was that made along the way or was that part of the initial thoughts of the book? That was made after a first draft written in third person. But you know how it goes when you make a mistake, you write a book in, from the wrong perspective, you end up seeing a lot of things that you wouldn't have seen if you'd written it from the first perspective. So I rewrote the book from first perspective from Eileen writing in present day about her life in 1964. But because I had this version of my head, this third person narrator who had distance and could speak sarcastically and was somewhat critical and and also objective in certain ways, all of that scooted into Eileen's narrator, Eileen the older narrator, and um, kind of made her personality what it is. Was there anything in that first version that you had in the back of your mind that since it was third person, it's something that she would never know, but you know it? Yeah, I don't know how much I wrote it down, but there's a lot that I know about the character of Rebecca that just doesn't ever make it into the book because Eileen would never know it. On some level, it's it was an exercise in creating a, a sort of outline of material that would never fit in the book, but subconsciously... When you do that, the characters of the places take on more meaning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think this is always the case, but when I'm writing, it re- it's really helpful to know exactly. Like if I'm if I was writing a scene in this room, 
you know, I, I might draw a diagram of where the microphones were, that there was a curtain here. Because if I know that, then maybe somebody walks by and only I can see, you know, or that the ceilings were this low or that the corners were like this, because maybe at some point I'll feel claustrophobic and that description of the room will will have done a lot of work so that I know that I'm in a claustrophobic room. So when I yank at my collar, we know exactly what that means. It's, it's getting hot in here. So I need to know as much as I can about the fictional world that I'm writing, even if it's just, you know, a one paragraph scene. And I think somehow psychically that transmits to the reader. Like they trust you when you know all that to pick out the, de the details that are going to do the most work. It's sort of why Middle Earth mm -hmm. has more meaning when you're reading, say, Lord of the Rings, because Tolkien created a world that doesn't appear in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he must have had to imagine it. He did really, imagine it. Really accurately. You know, in science fiction, if you're creating a world, the more the, the author knows of the world, then the more it will translate into what comes out on the page, mm -hmm. even if what comes out on the page is not all of that material. Yeah. So are you actually writing down these particular things? Like if Eileen is in a room, even though we don't see the room described, are you writing down what the room is or is it just in your head? Sometimes it's in my head or sometimes I'm actually drawing pictures. Is there like a picture book for any of these stories? <laughs> mm, no. I mean, there's little things and reminders along the way on a draft. But sometimes I have to diagram a whole house. Eileen works at a juvenile prison, and there are some scenes of her walking through corridors into different rooms. And in order to keep track of, you know, what she would pass or whose office she might see into, I had to draw a diagram of the layout of the prison. Otessa Mushfeg. One of the complaints about Eileen, which you talk about, I think, in the Guardian interview, is that people said that she was so unpleasant and, you know, so unlikable. And your response was, we live in a world where mass murderers are reelected. And yet it's a female character who is found to be offensive. That's both idiotic and sexist. True. You know, people who don't have a sense of humor or people who are uncomfortable with themselves or maybe don't respect women or don't know how to talk about this yet, the first thing they want me to know is that they know Eileen is disgusting. Wow, she's just gross, isn't she? As though I'm going to be somehow um, the person to validate that so that they don't ever have to feel gross themselves. I don't know. I totally don't get it. I don't know. This is complicated because I want people to like the book, and I don't care if they like Eileen. I didn't write Eileen so that she would be everybody's hero. She's a complicated person, and I think she's also a, a fiction. So, you know, a lot of people read, read her as a real person, like, oh, you wouldn't want to be alone in a room with her. Why? I would. She sounds pretty darn interesting. So, I don't know, you know, take it personally and then I get defensive. But this whole thing about sexism, it's like, yeah, I mean, of course, we live in it, like, we've all been brainwashed into a very sexist paradigm, and as readers, that's still true. Maybe Eileen has broken the ice a little bit, I hope. We'll see. Maybe it'll take another thousand years. You know, we call those kind of characters anti-heroes, and we don't have a problem with them. 
I mean, they appear in fiction usually male. And if they're female, you're right. They're denigrated in a way that if they're male, they're not. Yeah, people get scared, and I think it goes back to the death thing. When a woman isn't gentle-minded and maternal, or she's in a sex object, we don't know what she is. And then we, I think we get scared because we don't know what to do with her. She's not going to take care of us, and she's not going to make love to us. So who is she? It's like this, this third dimension of person. And I think that's a challenge. Is mommy going to leave me? Am I all alone? Is, is anyone going to love me? Eileen won't. I don't know. We're all kind of children. I notice in Homesick for Another World, many of the first-person characters are men. I don't feel super female. I don't feel super male. I like inhabiting these different people who usually have some problem with their gender identity. A lot of these characters are confused. And I don't feel as confused as they do, but I definitely feel like I'm not in a cat. Like, I, I won't put myself in a category when I'm being really honest about it. You said before that you have no interest in writing more short stories. Why? Mm-hmm. I feel like I figured something out in writing that and uh, have more things I want to do now. When I finished that book, I went and I knew that I had to write this new book, which I've just finished. And that's the one that takes place before 9-11? Yes. In the art world in New York. Yeah, nice. And then this woman who attempts to hibernate for a year taking gross amounts of prescription drugs. I knew I needed to do that. If something struck me and I said, oh, God, I need to write this short story, I would. It's not like I'm resisting it, but it just hasn't been where my ambition lies. Political ideas and social ideas don't really come into focus unless I'm missing something in these stories. I mean, there's a little of it in Eileen in the prison. Yeah. Well, I am so not interested in the online conversations that are being had. I don't even know what they are. When I hear about them, I want to vomit. The way that people are policing each other and making issues into quote-unquote issues. I have no idea what is right. And I don't like characters that are embedded in, in this brainwashing system of the internet. My last novel set in 2000, 2001, before people started living 99% of their lives on their smartphones. And I just, I don't know how to deal with that aspect of modern consciousness. And in in the same token, I don't feel like being part of the conversation that's being had on Twitter or, I don't know, just the way that the media feel like branding these certain issues so that everybody can have these boxed up conversations about them. You don't do any social media then? I'm not on social media. Every time I, I... look at it, it really upsets me. Like, it actually upsets me. I'm not saying that it, like, just makes me, it's just like, ugh. Like, it, I'm actually disturbed by it. It's addictive, and I also think it's really evil. I've come to a very similar conclusion, mm-hmm. and the addiction seems, my own addiction mm-hmm. seems somehow to, it's bothering me. It's like, I feel like I need to be on because of what we're doing mm-hmm. here, and yet at the same time, Outside of reading an occasional article that's been posted or just chatting with friends, I don't feel anything's being accomplished other than getting upset. I feel like the boundaries of my brain are bleeding when I look at Facebook or Twitter. Like somehow, I don't know, sometimes I wonder whose idea was this really to make us all hooked up to this non-reality zone 
where we're all saying the things that we feel like we want people to hear us say. They're not necessarily true or real or what really represents us. It's just this false zone of misconnection. It's not people that it's not that people are really connecting. And I've taken some breaks from the internet. The first time I did it was still in my 20s. I just decided I wasn't going online. I think I lasted like a couple months. And I and I was living in Brooklyn at the time and I would run into a friend and they'd be like, "You never emailed me back." And I just said, "I'm really sorry." I, I mean, I had an away message, you know. And I said, "Please call me on the telephone." And I wish I was doing that more, but it just I can't do that. And you know, I'm I'm on email constantly and texting constantly and it does change the way that you respond to the physical reality because now there's this invisible reality where there's just wave. Right now we're in Berkeley. A lot of people are thinking about this stuff and trying to make a lot of money off of it. Well, at the same time, a lot of people are thinking about this stuff in terms of the political situation, which might not have existed to this degree if this monster hadn't been created. And bringing it back to Homesick for Another World, I wonder if on some level the lack of interaction between the characters is sort of, I don't know, some kind of analog to Mm -hmm. social media. Yeah, you could say that. It is a very analog book. It's about people. They're not digital people. They're very visceral people. And there's no texting in it. I don't recall a single text being sent in the entire book. That one story, Mr. Wu, happens in a computer cafe, and I think he has a cell phone. But it takes place in China. It's the only one that does. You lived in China? I lived in China for two years in my early 20s, yeah. What did you walk away with in terms of living in that culture versus this one? That people were kinder than I expect them to be, and that we are all really vulnerable to how we're raised and how we're educated and what we see in the news and what our friends tell us to believe, that the world is big, there's a lot to learn, there's always more to learn, and that you're never actually right, you're only on the way to being right. The final story, Otessa Marshfeg, is called A Better Place, and on some level, I guess, it's the story that gives us the title, Homesick for Another World. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of fantasy, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, What brought you to write that? Because it's very different. I mean, yeah, the characters are as disconnected as Mm -hmm. ever, but it's very different from the other stories. Yeah, it's written in a very different register. It it reads more like a fable or a folktale. What brought you to it? I guess essentially I knew that I didn't want to write any more stories about annoying adults. And I had had some changes in my life where I, I knew the book was was over, was almost over. There was one thing that seemed really important to me, and it was this question that is is asked in the last piece, um, which is called a better place. And it was sort of the last decision that I was making in this this time of writing the book where I was really isolated. I was really lonely. Like the characters in my collection, 
in my isolation, my thoughts would spin around themselves and become perverted and turn to obsessions and, you know, might lead to self-destructive behavior or, you know, like a huge delusion about something that was absolutely not true. And um, it was really hard to stay centered without anybody around me to reflect back what was going on. So I wrote this story about two twins. And I like that there were twins. I mean, these pe- they're essentially not alone. There are these two kids, and they're being raised by their mother in what feels like a village, maybe somewhere in Eastern Europe, in a time that you can't really put your finger on. And this brother and sister pair both feel like they weren't, they're not actually from this world. They're from somewhere else. Well, they seem to have recollections of what it was like to be in the womb. Yeah, they can remember that, but they also know that there was a place before that, and they would like to go back there. And the girl, more than the boy, would really like to go back there. They have some theories for how to get back to the better place, and the first way back is to die, and they know that's going to happen anyway. They saw their father die. He's apparently in a better place. But the second way back would be to kill the right person. And if you kill the right person, a hole opens up in the ground, and then you can jump through the hole and get back to the better place. And, and that's that becomes the reality for this this adolescent girl. And, and her decision is to, whether to make that happen or stay with her brother. And that felt like a decision I was making in my life, too. It's like, am I going to change so dramatically in order to survive or... Am I going to stay who I am, attached to the people who love me? And, like, is there something in between? She ends up making a choice, and we don't know what happens. It's a very dangerous choice that she's making. She's making a big risk. And I was at a place in my life where I felt like I either either need to change completely or kill myself, or I'm going to stay miserable and not alone with the people who love me. It was a weird moment in my life, and that's where the story came out of. Well, I noticed that in many of the stories, the stories end with a question, you know, where we don't really know what's going to happen, that you're not giving us that satisfying either they're not going to make it or they will. Mm -hmm. I think that's what a short story is so great for, is ending in a moment of excitement and, whoa, what? You know? But a novel can't do that. A novel can, but the shape of a novel is just so different, I think, or, you know, conventionally speaking, at least, that in order to do that would be like finishing a novel after the first first act or something, right after the main event. Otessa Moshfeg, a writer, when they're coming up with the title of a short story collection, picks a title from one of the stories. Mm-hmm. And in each of the stories, the titles kind of, you can sort of see at the end of the story why the title was generated. Mm -hmm. Sort of see it for the title of the book, Homesick for Another World. Is there any specific event or idea that brought you to that specific title? I was in the middle of writing A Better Place. It was my 30, how old am I now? I guess it was my 30, for 33rd, maybe, birthday. And I decided to stay home and eat mushrooms and read my tarot <laughs> and listen to Balinese gamelan 
and I was just making some notes about how, how I was about my thoughts and my feelings and and I and I said I feel homesick for another world and that was it that was and and I and I think the next day I, I continued writing the story and that phrase just stuck with me but that was not going to be the, the title of the particular story though no I knew it I knew it wasn't the title of the story the story needed a a more mundane title, A Better Place is, is the right title for that story. Did you have trouble finding the titles of your stories? Mm, no, the, no, you know, the, the story whose title I struggled with the most was the story I ended up calling An Honest Woman. I did not know what to call that story. And for a while, I wanted to call the collection Side Effects of Shifting Spiritual Paradigms and then um, realized that nobody would ever buy that book. I might, but it sounds like something published in the 70s by some cult, which is not what my book is about. Otessa Mushfeg, has Hollywood come calling on Eileen? Yeah. The book was optioned, and apparently there's a really fantastic screenwriter and playwright who's adapting the novel for for a screen. So we'll see. My fingers are crossed. (laughs) The new book, set in the art world in 2000, which I guess comes out probably 2018, I would think. I hope so. Uh, What's the title? My Year of Rest and Relaxation. You've been listening to an interview with fiction writer Otessa Moshve, recorded on tour for her short story collection, Homesick for Another World, February 2nd, 2017, in the KPFA studios. Her latest novel, Lopvona, was published in 2022. She is also listed as co-screenwriter of the 2022 film Causeway, which is currently streaming via an Apple Plus subscription. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky. You can subscribe to Radio Walensky via iTunes or follow Richard Walensky radio shows on Facebook. You can write to me, Richard Walensky, either at bookwaves at hotmail.com or richard at kpfa.org. You can find other Radio Walensky podcasts in the Area 941 section of kpfa.org, or you can go to bookwaves.homestead.com or richardwalensky.com for a complete listing of all digitized recordings. Radio Walensky usually posts every week on Sundays.